Good morning. Uh, for those of y'all don't know me, my name is Jonathan Powell. I'm the young adults minister here at Southwest. Um, today we're continuing our sermon series on spiritual blindness or having a blinded mind. And the common thread that's running throughout this series comes from the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Two weeks ago, Craig, our senior minister, introduced this series with a question, why is it so hard to believe in a creator? And the answer is our minds can sometimes just be blinded to the truth. We know God, but we don't want to glorify him or give him thanks. We want to live the way we want to live. We know the truth, but we choose to ignore it because we just don't want the truth to be the truth. Um, I was a missionary in Ukraine for over 20 years, and when we were living there, we lived in a little town called Birdyansk, and um, often during the summers we would have college students come over and spend their summer with us, and we'd do camps and vacation Bible schools, village outreaches, but right before they would go home, we'd take them up uh, to the capital, Kiev, and do some sightseeing and souvenir shopping. And for souvenir shopping, we always took them to this street. Um, it's St. Andrew's Street that's named after the church, the Orthodox Church. That's my favorite Orthodox church in Ukraine. And so every time we go uh, to buy souvenirs, I could walk by it, go in it, and see it. But um, it's up on the hill, and um, the souvenir street is cobblestone, and it winds its way down the hill till it eventually ends at the Dnipro River. And so it's really pretty. There's all these souvenirs, and what we usually do is uh, I give them an instruction. I'm going to tell you that instruction in just a second. But I give them one instruction, and then we just send them out, and everybody just kind of goes down the hill at their own pace, and um, I'm quicker than everybody else because I don't really care about souvenirs much anymore. i got a house full of them. Um, it looks like a Ukrainian museum sometimes in my house. But So I would just wait at the end for them to trickle down until everybody was ready, and we'd go on and do some more sightseeing. But we always had one instruction. And I just tell them, don't buy anything old or made of precious metal, especially coins. Don't buy old coins because it's going to get confiscated at the airport. And then most likely it'll just be right back on this street for the, you know, for the, the next schmuck to buy it. You know, and and the, you know, it seemed like it was just getting recycled. You know, it was a system they had. So I just said, don't buy anything old. Other than that, you're great. So one time I was waiting at the bottom of the street as, as the students came down and we were all waiting and one guy came up to me big smile on his face, reached into his pocket, pulled out and said, look at all these cool coins I just purchased. And I was like, yeah, those are awesome. You know, they got, oh, I see the face of Catherine the Great on one of those coins. That's probably pure silver. You know you can't take that with you, right? I told you, you can't take that with you. And um, he told me, oh, don't worry about it. They'll be fine. Relax, no worries. I'm just going to keep it in my pocket with my other change. And, you know, and they'll, they'll never figure it out. So this guy, you know, had it all planned. I didn't know what else to say. I just kind of shrugged my shoulders because I had already told him the truth. I told him what was going to happen, and he just ignored it because he wanted those coins. But guess what happened when he got to the airport after he had checked in his bags, gotten his ticket, and he goes through, you know, after you, you, know, you go through and you get into the line for security, and it's like, I can't follow you any further. And uh, he goes through security, and it beeps. They send him through again, it beeps. 
He starts turning out his pockets, everything coming out. And eventually two really big guys come out and take him into a really small room and have a talk with him. Thankfully, all that happened was they took his coins. Um, I had told him the truth, but he had chosen to ignore it. And in the words of Fleetwood Mac, you can go your own way. Last week, Craig looked at the story of Cain and Abel. God accepted Abel's sacrifice, but not Cain's. And Craig made a really interesting point that I've been thinking about all week that to me is just so timely, so relevant to our culture. We're always playing the comparison game, especially on social media. And before you get smug and tell me, oh, I'm off social media, make sure you don't accidentally compare your car or truck to newer, fancier models sitting in the parking lot as you leave today. The story of Cain and Abel when Cain's sacrifice wasn't accepted by God, Cain felt angry, embarrassed, slighted. And in that moment, God warned him, sin is crouching at your door. And the right response was to go prepare a new sacrifice, one that would be pleasing to God, but instead he decided to project all those negative feelings onto his brother and kill him. This is the point that Craig made that I I want you to hear today. God didn't compare Cain to Abel. God didn't compare Cain's offering to Abel's. He didn't say to Cain, look at Abel, look at your brother. Look at his sacrifice. Cain, why can't you be more like your brother? He didn't say any of that. Cain, not God, played the comparison game. And we all know that that game never ends well. Well, today we're looking at another story found in the Old Testament in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 16. And this story may or may not be familiar to you, but I think it, you'll recognize a lot of the names uh, when you hear them, because we're going to be talking about Ahab, Jezebel, and Elijah today. So let's start in 1 Kings, chapter 16, verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole, and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. And if you know anything about me, uh, you know I'm a big fan of Eugene Peterson and his paraphrase of the Bible, the message. So let's listen to how he translates this this passage into contemporary language. Ahab, son of Omri, did even more open evil before God than anyone yet, a new champion of evil. It wasn't enough for him to copy the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. No, he went all out. First by marrying Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and then by serving and worshiping the god Baal. He built a temple for Baal in Samaria and then furnished it with an altar for Baal. Worse, he went on and built a shrine to the sacred four Asherah. He made the god of Israel angrier than all the previous kings of Israel put together. Romans 121 is a perfect description of Ahab and his life. For although Ahab knew God, he neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, 
But Ahab's thinking became futile, and his foolish heart was darkened. God sent Elijah the prophet to King Ahab with a message that he was not going to like. Ahab, I serve the Lord, the God of Israel, and I've got news for you. A drought is coming. For several years there will be no rain, not even dew, and nothing is going to change that without my say-so. No rain, no dew, until I give the word. How did King Ahab become a new champion of evil? Well, he started by marrying Jezebel who turned him away from the true God to worshiping and serving other gods. And so now, quick aside, for those of you who are dating, thinking about dating, planning on dating in the future, here's some food for thought. Is the person you're dating or thinking about dating pulling you closer to God and the Christian community, his church, or is that person drawing you away, away from God, away from church, away from Christian community? that person is drawing you away you need to get out of that relationship i know what you're thinking right now why jonathan what do you know he or she is a good person with a good heart i can help them i can save them no you need to get out of that relationship the apostle paul says don't partner with unbelievers and just like I warned the guy about the coins at the airport, Paul is warning us. I knew what was going to happen at the airport. A relationship between a believer, a Christ follower, and a non-believer isn't a good idea and doesn't end well. We can't always see where the road goes or how it ends, but God knows. And Ahab is an extreme example of that truth. But back to the story, who were these new gods that Ahab had chosen to follow, Baal and Asherah. In polytheistic religions, gods often have specific roles. I know we got a lot of Marvel fans in the audience. Thor is the Norse god of what? Thunder. Y'all need to shout out. This is the participation part of the sermon. Loki. Loki is the god of mischief. I'm still not happy with the audience participation. <laughs> not at all. Okay, now we're going to go to Greco-Roman pantheon. Ares or Mars is the god of war. Thank you for yelling. While Aphrodite or Venus is the goddess of love. So what about Ahab's new gods? Baal and Asherah. What domains do they reign over? Baal controls the weather. Lightning, wind, and rain. And Asherah? fertility so ahab married jezebel and decided to worship baal and asherah in place of the lord the god of israel he built a temple and an altar to baal who controls the weather and sends rain so how did our god the lord of israel respond with a drought and the only person who can flip the switch and send the rain is elijah his prophet so much for baal god of the weather and giver of rain. If you're wondering how long that drought lasted, the answer is in James 5, verse 17. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Three and a half years. After three and a half years, Elijah came back and was greeted by Ahab, 
with these words, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Doesn't seem like Ahab has had a change of heart, does it? Doesn't seem like he's learned the folly of his ways. Still not convinced that even though after a three-year drought, Baal seems to have made a really poor showing as the God of weather and rain. So our God, the God of Israel, was about to send rain, but first he wanted to make a grand gesture to win the hearts of his people. So Elijah tells Ahab to gather all the people of Israel on Mount Carmel, including the 450 prophets of Baal and 450 prophets of Asherah. When everyone is gathered, Elijah goes before the people and says, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Why do you think they were silent? I think they didn't know that they had to choose. The kingdom of Israel had become polytheistic. The Lord, the God of Israel, wasn't replaced or supplanted by Baal and or Asherah. No. He was just asked to scooch. Scooch over. Make room for Baal. Make room for Asherah. They didn't know they had to choose. We can worship them all. But we don't serve a God who scooches. They had forgotten that our God is a jealous God. Exodus 34, 14 says this. Do not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Scott. Scott. Are you still taking suggestions for baby names? I'm just going to throw Jealous out there. You can think about it. It's a biblical name. Do you know what else? I don't think the people wanted to choose. They were hedging their bets. I'll offer sacrifices at the altar of Baal. I'll participate in worship at the Asherah pole. Hopefully one of them will respond favorably. I'll pray to the God of Israel. Let's jump back into the narrative. 1 Kings 18.22 Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I'll prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to talk to them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. Amazing story, isn't it? Elijah the prophet of the Lord against the 400 prophets of Baal. Two bulls, two sacrifices offered. It's a cage match. Loser leave town. Who will answer, the God of Israel 
or Baal. And Elijah says, y'all can go first. From morning till noon, they cried out and danced around the altar, asking Baal to rain down fire and consume their sacrifice. But they're met with crickets. At noon, Elijah encourages them to get louder. Maybe he's distracted or away from his desk. Maybe he's asleep at the wheel and just needs to be roused. They began to cut themselves with their swords and spears in an attempt to get their God's attention, but to no avail. They carried on like that into the evening, but the Bible tells us in verse 29, there was no response, no one answered. But now it's Elijah's turn. 1 Kings 18.30 Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seas of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go, eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant, and he went up and looked. There's nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. The seventh time the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds, the winds rose. A heavy rain started following, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came on Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Two words sprang to mind as I read through Elijah's preparations for the sacrifice. Restoration and reconciliation. As he repaired the altar, he took 12 stones, one for each tribe of Israel, and spoke over them, each one saying, Your name shall be Israel. The Lord, the God of Israel, was reclaiming his people and restoring covenant with them. And now Elijah invited the people to participate. He called the people to fill four large jars with water and pour them over the sacrifice, the wood, and the altar. They did this three times, and the water filled the trench around the altar. And then, standing before the people and the prophets of Baal, Elijah prayed. No dancing, no shouting, no cutting himself with a blade. He prayed. He said, Lord, I know that you are God. Hear my prayer and answer so that the people will know that you are God and that you are turning their hearts back again to you. 
Fire rained down from heaven, consuming the sacrifice, the wood, the altar, the soil, and every drop of water in the trench. And the people cried out to the Lord, He is God. Elijah had the prophets of Baal seized and executed so they could no longer exert any influence on the nation. And then Elijah told Ahab, you better head home because it looks like rain. And once again, he prays. He prayed with his face between his knees. He couldn't see anything. He told his servant to go and look over the sea for any sign of rain. The servant returned saying, I don't see anything. But Elijah didn't look up. He didn't get discouraged. His faith didn't waver. He kept on praying. Seven times he asked his servant to look for rain, and the seventh time the servant said, I see a cloud. And as the clouds gathered, Elijah sent word to Ahab, the bomb is about to drop out of the sky. And to top it off, the power of the Lord came on Elijah, and he outpaced Ahab in his chariot. Can you imagine how Elijah must have felt as he raced home ahead of the rain? Let's recap the events. God tells Elijah to go to Ahab, Tell him after three and a half years, rain is on the way. Elijah confronts Ahab and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, and God's victorious, and the people proclaim that the Lord, he is God. Elijah prays for rain, and it doesn't just rain, it pours. And then God's power, power enables Elijah to beat Ahab back to Jezreel, even though he's on foot and Ahab was in a chariot. Elijah has had a literal mountaintop experience with God on Mount Carmel, followed by being given a literal spring in his step. God was turning the hearts of his people back to him. Ahab firsthand saw the difference between Asherah and Baal and the God of Israel. Ahab witnessed three miracles in one day, an all-consuming fire from heaven, heavy rain and an end of the drought, and finally Elijah running past his chariot on foot. The evidence was overwhelming. What a day, right? I bet Elijah had a hard time going to sleep that night. I'm guessing his mind was racing as he had relived all the things that had happened. Tomorrow was going to be different. A new day, a new dawn, a new chapter in the history of God's people. This was a cause for celebration. God was restoring and reconciling his people to himself, and now the king and the nation would recommit themselves to the Lord. But that's not what happened. Here's where the story ends. 1 Kings 19, verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. I already speculated about how Elijah spent his evening recounting the day's events as he listened to the rain outside his home. We know how Ahab spent his evening. He too recounted the day's events to his wife Jezebel as they both listened to the falling rain. And instead of responding in humility and repentance, they sought to kill Elijah. But surprisingly, instead of sending soldiers to arrest or kill Elijah, Jezebel sends Elijah word of her intentions to kill him through a messenger. Why do you think she's sending out a save the date instead of just killing him? <laughs> to me, the only explanation is the hand of God giving Elijah time to escape. Imagine again how downcast and despondent he must have felt when he got word of Jezebel's plans. He had thought the people would turn and repent and praise God. 
He had expected the king to turn and repent and to praise God. So now thinking back on all that had happened in the last three and a half years, and especially that last day, it must have seemed like nothing had changed. But we aren't here today to focus on Elijah. We're focusing on Ahab. Ahab knew God. He had seen the power of God firsthand. He had waited on Baal to respond. But the Bible told us, tells us there was no response, no answer. I also wonder how that conversation between Ahab and Jezebel went. Had the day's events softened his heart for a moment and inclined him towards God, or was he just angry? Was he relating these events with wonder at all that God, the God of Israel had done, or was he just angry at the humiliation of himself, Baal, and his prophets? We know how Jezebel felt. She sits down and pens a note informing Elijah of her intentions to kill him. So although Ahab knew God, he neither glorified him as God nor gave him thanks. Instead, his thinking became futile and his foolish heart was darkened. Ahab witnessed three miraculous signs that displayed God's sovereignty over nature, over the weather, and that he alone was God. How could Ahab be so blind not to see that and respond accordingly? How could he be so foolish as to respond by seeking to shoot the messenger, Elijah? It's a cautionary tale. It's the proverbial slippery slide of sin. The further we remove ourselves from God, the more blinded we are to his truth and the more foolish and futile our lives become. And at a certain point, God echoes the words of Fleetwood Mac. You can go your own way. If you read further in Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul repeats the phrase, God gave them over three times. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. Verse 26, because of this God gave them over to shameful lusts. And finally, verse 28, furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. Does it sound like Ahab? God showed up that day on Mount Carmel before King Ahab and all the people with the purpose of turning their hearts back to him. And he's present here today. But he's not going to twist your arm. And we've already established that he ain't going to scooch for nobody or nothing. The question for us today is how will we respond? Are we going to ignore the truth of who we know God to be or are we going to glorify him as God and give thanks to him? Amen.